Welcome to the Aerospace Advantage Podcast. I'm Doug Berkey, Executive Director of Mitchell Institute. Here on Aerospace Advantage, we speak with leaders in the DoD, industry, and other subject matter experts to explore the intersection of strategy, operational concepts, technology, and policy when it comes to air and space power. If you like learning about aerospace power, you're in the right place. So to our regular listeners, welcome back. And if it's your first time here, thanks so much for joining us. And as a reminder, if you like what you hear, please do us a favor and follow our show and give us a like and leave a comment so we can keep charting the trajectories that matter most to you. Now this week, we're going to talk about a topic that's been in the headlines a lot, and that's munitions. You know, combat aircraft don't achieve mission results on their own. It takes a combination of the right tools to get the job done. And at the top of this list are are bombs and air-to-surface missiles. You know, it's hard to pick up a newspaper these days without being reminded about the importance of these weapons as we watch combat operations play out in Ukraine and and other places around the world. It comes to a zone, though, where as critical as munitions are to warfighters, it's also important to recognize we've taken our foot off the gas far too long, innovating new designs that speak to evolving mission requirements. I mean, let's face it. Munition demands we saw in places like Afghanistan and Iraq, they're really stable, and and the situations weren't really demanding by modern threat standards. So in many ways, we coasted on the weapons inventory we had on hand. I mean, it was a place we could get savings, was just kind of producing what was on the shelf versus driving a lot of innovation investment. And I'm not saying there wasn't innovation in play and, and serious commitment to getting the job done as precisely and effectively as possible, given the circumstances. But the reality is that we were dominated by the operating environment of the time, and that drove a defined set of operating patterns that persisted for decades. But now, as we look to a potential conflict with peer and near-peer adversaries laid out in the national defense strategy, it's beyond clear that we're going to need a new set of munitions capabilities, given the nature of the threat environment. And we're going to need to think about how we can procure large quantities of these new munitions, given the likely scale of these fights. And we're not talking about tens of targets a day. It's going to be hundreds, if not thousands, in a pure conflict. You know, remember in Desert Storm, the air campaign, it involved strikes on the, on the average of 40,000 aim points you know, for that campaign. Scale up that munitions demand signal for a conflict with a pure adversary, and the math is pretty obvious. We're talking six-digit requirements in a rapid time window, not over a long period of months or or years. So to help us better understand this challenge and some potential solutions, I'm pleased to introduce our very own Mark Gunzinger. As you know, he's one of our top experts, and he wrote a report on this topic last year called Affordable Mass, the need for a cost-effective PGM mix for great power conflict. And you can find it on our website. I really recommend reading it. Gonzo, always a pleasure to have you here. Ah, great to be with you, gentlemen. Now, we've also got Jim Young of Boeing, where he serves as the executive director for Boeing's direct attack portfolio within its precision engagement systems organization. And, you know, bottom line, guys, if you want to know about where munitions are going, it is best to talk to somebody somebody who's really helping innovate and build tomorrow's inventory capabilities. Sir, great to have you here. Hey, thank you. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. And, uh, you know, at Boeing, we have a long track record of uh, supporting the DOD and on uh, our many uh, over 30 allies and international partners uh, with our portfolio of precision guided munitions. And we're very focused today on delivering those rapid, effective, and affordable solutions to meet the new and evolving threats in, in this increasingly global uh, environment that uh, that's being described. 
uh, looking forward to the discussion. Thanks. Hey, Jim, uh, Sconzo, good to have you. Has a uh, former customer dropped many of your munitions in the past? Great, thanks. So, you know, Gonzo, I tried to set the scene up front, but you really studied this issue in depth. C can you walk us through some history regarding how we got to the current state of play? I mean, for instance, the impact of stealth and precision strike during Desert Storm, it can't be overstated. I mean, it radically transformed how we envisioned warfare from top commanders to the public at large. And, you know, of course, that was over 30 years ago. It's hard to believe. And a lot's happened since then. Could, could you expand that? Yeah, Desert Storm is a great place to start because it truly was a, a watershed in air warfare. Now, we, we saw new technologies like precision guidance, uh, sensors to detect moving ground targets, certainly stealth, and networks to integrate operations across the data really prove their mettle uh, during that air campaign. So everyone could use one or two PGMs to attack a, uh, a target aim point instead of the hundreds of tons of unguided bombs uh, that they needed in the past, which is why campaign planners started thinking about how many targets per sortie were possible instead of how many sorties per target were required. And of course, stealth aircraft didn't need large supporting formations of aircraft to suppress air defense threats, which is why it's a force multiplying technology. But it's also true that DoD made a series of cuts to its combat air forces beginning in 1990, rationalizing that it no longer needed a combat air force size to repair conflict. And since precision guidance and other technologies made fighters and bombers far more effective in combat, fewer sorties and fewer aircraft were needed for an air campaign. That all translates directly to reduced aircraft inventory requirements. Now, that calculus seemed reasonable at the time, but DOD's practice of trading forces to fund upgrades and extend the lives of existing systems lasted for more than 30 years. In fact, it's still doing it today. And at the same time, DOD failed to really feel the next generation of capabilities as they did during the Cold War to keep pace with peer adversaries. So as DoD defested and deferred, those adversaries fielded multiple weapon systems that are designed to defeat our current forces and preferred way of war. Now, in, in hearing you talk about that, I'm, I'm reminded of the charts that, that we would see, quite frankly, that would show how many bombers it would take to attack a target in World War II or, or in Vietnam. And now it's, it's really, you know, one weapon, one target, or, you know, one or two weapons, one target. It's just such a game changer. I appreciate you covering that. You know, we're in a different place today. So can you describe the circumstances that our airmen are, are now looking at when they're looking at missions? Sure. We are caught out with a fighter and bomber force that's too small for pure conflicts. They simply can't generate enough sorties, and, of course, they lack attrition reserves. And today's operating environment is very different. The development and uh, global proliferation of advanced air defense threats called integrated air defense systems, IATs, has changed the way our air forces would need to operate in future conflicts. And that's why we see the Air Force and Navy investing in fifth and sixth gen stealthy combat aircraft. But the same is true for our munitions inventory. It lacks the capacity and the capabilities needed for 
high-intensity air warfare in contested environments in the Pacific, and as, as well against rogue states that have uh, acquired advanced air defenses. Simply said, more of the same will not work. Further extending the operational lives of combat aircraft designed in the 70s and 80s and buying more of the same kind of weapons that uh, were so effective during Desert Storm, that's not a recipe for winning our future wars. Now, you think about it, Gonzo. I mean, consider what a phone was when Desert Storm occurred and then what a phone is today and how fast technology has changed. And then you layer on the requirements with threat and all that, and it is beyond obvious it's time for an update. And I think it's hard because, you know, people just see ammunition hanging off a, a rail and they say, well, the bomb's a bomb, not at all. So, you know, given that context, what are the key drivers from a threat perspective and a, and a desired effects vantage that demand we relook at the composition of our air launch munitions portfolio and, and those specifics? Yeah, from a threat perspective, Advanced IADs are also increasingly effective against individual munitions, not just aircraft. And that means reduced weapon survivability will translate to more weapons are going to be needed to attack defended targets. And more weapons per target will require more sorties. And as I said, we don't have the forces to do that, especially at the scale needed for a peer conflict. There's a better approach, and that is to change the composition of our munitions inventory as we are our aircraft inventories. Developing more survivable munitions, part of the answer. But you know, as that would reduce the number of weapons needed per target, because the weapons are going to survive to get there, survivability alone will not account for the much larger size of target sets the appear conflict relative to the kinds of fights we've been in over the last 30 years. We also need to greatly increase the size of our munitions inventory. And that's why striking the right balance between the range, size, survivability, and cost of weapons we buy is so important. And understanding how those characteristics relate is absolutely key. Yeah, for example, the size of weapons tend to increase with their range. Cruise missiles, for example, are designed to carry fuel, navigation systems, and other capabilities for long-range flights. But larger weapons mean aircraft can carry fewer of them per sortie, which again brings us back to more sorties to strike a target set. And the motors, guidance systems, terminal seekers, and data links that long range cruise missiles need drive up their cost. And what I'm explaining here is DOD's force planners must seek to strike the right balance between these weapons characteristics as they develop requirements for their future weapons inventories. No, and it's quite a challenge to balance all that and really appreciate you laying it out. You know, Jim, what's your take on the picture Gonzo just laid out for us? Yeah, I think uh, Gonzo did a really good job of laying that out. And uh, we view Boeing's identity in the defense industry as DOD's trusted provider of affordable mass for over the past uh, uh, three decades. Now, our JDAM production line has supported multiple conflicts around the globe, not only for the U.S., but for our 35 partner and allied nations. Between the JDAM and the SCB, we ramped up to delivery over 60,000 precision weapons annually when our military called upon us to do that. Our, at the beginning, our usage rates exceeded the capacity at the start of Operation Inherent Resolve, but by growing and expanding our capacity by five times, both at Boeing and at our supply chain, we met and exceeded those daily usage rates. 
you know, during that time frame, our, our focus was not on not only expanding production, but also looking at new technologies uh, that would keep the, the weapon systems relevant. Those technologies evolved out of the need to operate in the GPS degraded environment with improved GPS receivers, GPS independence, longer range with wing kits, powered weapons, and collaborative weapons. What we have remained absolutely unwavering about is our core mission of providing the warfighter high volume production capacity at affordable and exportable solutions. And as we look at the lessons from even just the recent Ukraine conflict, what we understand the country needs for deterring conflict in the Indo-PACOM region, it's affordable max. It's large quantities of standoff weapons that complement the exquisite weapons early in a conflict and then that will be there and available for day eight and beyond. In addition, we need these to be available to our partners and to for them to bring those to the fight at an affordable price. No, I appreciate that. And, you know, Gonza, if, if you add what you said and, and what Jim just laid out, do you see those attributes reflected in the current munitions inventory? What's the status? Well, the short answer is no. The inventory is unbalanced. It still mostly consists of uh, a very large number of short-range direct attack weapons and a smaller number of those very long-range uh, standoff cruise missiles. By direct attack, I'm talking about weapons, gravity bombs that are typically unpowered and don't have wings to extend their ranges. So they've got ranges in say the tens of miles. As for long range, I'm, I'm talking about cruise missiles that can fly after launch 250 nautical miles or more, just to ground our uh, listeners. The point is there are very few weapons in the middle range between say 40 to 250 nautical miles. And, and I'm an advocate for developing a family of those mid-range weapons and that is based on our and other government and non-government analyses to optimize the balance between the size, range, survivability, and cost of munitions so we can develop affordable mass for operations in contested and highly contested environments. Not to hit the obvious here, but I think it's really important to spell out the thinking. I mean, both you and Jim hit the term affordable mass. I mean, Gonzo, you talked about cost effective in, in your report title. Can you just talk to the notion of why the expense of the mission is so important in this equation? Yeah, absolutely. Preparing for a peer conflict and filling stocks in multiple theaters are going to require buying munitions at a scale that the Air Force hasn't experienced in a long time. And if these munitions cost multiple millions of dollars each, that's going to be tough, if not impossible to do. So cost has to be part of the munitions inventory rebalancing calculus along with range size, target specificity, and so on. Let me just throw out an example. The Army's long-range hypersonic weapon is going to cost $45 million or, or more each. That's for a single small warhead to strike a single target. And I just can't see how the Army will be able to afford to buy more than a handful of weapons at that price. And the Air Force's developmental boost glide air-launched rapid response weapon, the Arrow, could cost $14 million or more each, and that's probably why the Air Force has said it's probably not going to buy them. Uh, and just for context, for the price of two of those Army weapons, the Air Force could buy about 60 mid-range stand-in attack weapons that are capable of striking emitting targets in, in contested environments 
or even a greater number of other mid-range weapons like power JDEPs. That is what DOD needs to hear from its combatant commanders, that, that kind of a decision calculus. Do they want weapons to strike 60 targets or one weapon for one target? Now, I'm not saying we're not going to need the uh, long-range hypersonic weapon. We might for a very small number of extremely high-value targets, but I'm making a comparison to drive home the point. The cost must be part of the munitions rebalancing equation. Yeah, it's, it's really well said. And again, just to hammer what you're saying, Gonzo, I mean, I, I think people need to really get their heads around the number of aim points that could be in a major theater campaign. I mean, I the number of the, the boss, General Deptula, always tosses out to us for Desert Storm was 40,000 aim points. And for a major campaign, you know, larger scale, you, you could be talking over 100,000, and you just do the math on that. And we see how hard it is to sustain stocks right now with smaller scale contingencies like Ukraine or what we saw in the Middle East over the last several years. I mean, this notion of volume, people really need to understand we're talking about a step function and change and then some. And so the entire calculus has to change. So thanks for laying that out. You know, Jim, I just want to bring you into the equation here because you guys were huge in, in changing cost curve back in the day. I mean, Gonza talked about Desert Storm and really the first mass introduction of precision guided munitions. But those are ones that were not cheap by any scale, highly effective. So, you know, cost per effect balanced out there. But again, when you come to, to real mass, there was a challenge, and, and you guys are instrumental in, in breaking the precision cost curve back in the 90s with the invention and fielding of joint direct attack munition, or JDAM for short. I mean, I remember this in reading about it in Avweek and all, and it, it was really just mind-blowing. The effectiveness you could bring for a certain price point, it was an absolute game-changer. Can you walk us through that history and really how you saw it play out to bring precision to to the battlefield in high volume, but at an affordable cost? Yeah, uh, absolutely. And so the JDAM program was born out of the need to have precision with a dumb bomb or unguided bomb. And so JDAM has been a huge success for not only Boeing, but for DOD and F FMS community, you know, even, even earning the moniker of the warfighter's weapon of choice for its versatility, strategic strike precision, and unprecedented ability to drastically reduce collateral damage on the battlefield. It really has been, become a part of our core identity to break the cost curve and produce the right level of effort weapon. Here at Boeing, we, we spend significant effort to keep our costs down and be able to continue that as the JDAM program has evolved over the, the 20 plus years that it's been in existence. JDAM started with the GPS guidance. We work closely with our suppliers to develop the technology and software to create a nav system for the everyday bullet that was being used at the time uh, for both the Navy and the, and the Air Force. As JDAM was fielded, it was continuously improved to the point we are today, where our GPS receivers nowadays are 200 times more resilient to jamming than our first anti-jam variants. In our next production lot, JDAM's moving to the Sabre M configuration using the M code GPS, and that provides even more enhanced capability to counter the jamming capabilities that are out there. Developing technology is the, you know, really the easy part. And then what it is, is taking that technology to develop and turning it into an affordable and producible solution. And you know, that's really why I'm, I'm so thrilled to be here and leading the direct attack team. You know, in addition to GPS resilience, we also went through a time period where it took a miracle to hit a moving target. And so in partnership with the USAF and the Navy, we came up with laser jamming. 
which provided Seeker onto the JDAM family. Now, everyone loved the JDAM capability, but then it needed more range. So we worked with the Australian Defense and the industry partners to build wing kits that could go on a JDAM and triple its range to north of 40 nautical miles. At that point in the time, the versatility of the JDAM platform really became apparent. Where acquisition teams procured kits, logisticians built up the weapons, and then the warfighter had the right capability for the daily mission. So in a sense, tailor the buildup of the weapon to the need of the day. We're very proud of that heritage and our culture continues to revolutionize the technology and do it in an affordable way to make JDAM and SCB a family of affordable solutions to provide the warfighters with mass on the battlefield. So now we're looking forward and focused on adding a low cost, high producible turbojet engines to JDAM and make it a powered JDAM, which is designed to eliminate the long range land and sea-based threats that would restrict the ability of US and our partners to safely and effectively operate in the contested battle space. System, the systems combine the proven JDAM guidance with an innovative wing assembly and a propulsion module resulting in ranges uh, north of 300 nautical miles. So going back to my point about versatility, it provides the same modularity, the flexibility, the respectability, and can leverage the same existing JDAM integration for rapid feeling and carry the, that capability on over 3,500 aircraft around the world that JDAM's already integrated. And so we're doing this with our allies, again with Australia, and our power JDAM, we believe will be the next success story for the U.S. and our allies. Yeah, that's impressive. And, and Jim, just to clarify for the audience here, you know, when I talk about breaking the cost curve, in Desert Storm, you know, we're talking about precision guided munitions. It could be over a million dollars per unit. As I recall, and correct me if I'm wrong, you know, when JDAM first came out, initial variants, I mean, it was double-digit thousands, right? Am, am I correct with that? Yes, and that exactly in that ballpark, and because it's it's a simple kit that's put onto the the dumb bomb and, and creates the the guided munition from it. So yes, absolutely. No, I appreciate. I just want to clarify because you know Pentagon math, we can say it's affordable, and when you when you put the number on the table, people go, yeah, right. No, this really was. It really did break the cost curve. So. You know, Gonzo, we're huge fans here of the concept called cost perfect, and I mentioned it earlier, and, and that's the notion that you can yield kind of the enterprise effect you want in a far smarter, efficient way, and it might involve some assets that have certain zones of, of investment, but the end product is cheaper at the end of the day. Just walk us through how JDAM fit the mold in that regard when it came out and kind of how you see, you've seen it evolve. Yeah, and uh, you mentioned cost per effect. I should have mentioned that as well when I was talking about cost earlier, like cost to kill a particular target, which is the much more important metric than a unit cost of a weapon. So you already mentioned the hundreds of bomber sorties that are needed to attack some large targets in Europe during World War II. Mass was needed to offset the lack of precision guidance. And a lot of progress toward improving bombing accuracy had been made by the time I became a B-50 pilot, B-52 pilot in the early 1980s. But even then, without true PGMs, high altitude bombing scores of, well, less than a thousand feet were a pretty good day. The uh, use of uh, laser-guided bombs was another watershed towards replacing mass precision. LGBs are effective in desert storm, but you know, bad weather, dust, smoke, and so forth, obscuring targets could degrade their effectiveness. 
Enter JDAM, an all-weather, day-night strike munition that was and is still a very low-cost weapon, extremely cost-effective and affordable to the point that the Air Force can buy weapons without price point at scale. So just to wrap up, precision guidance replaced need for mass and the low cost of JDAMs finally gave us an unmatched ability to impose costs on adversaries because the weapons that we were using against targets cost far less than the targets we were attacking. Now, it, it's incredible. And, and again, we, we've seen this history play out in our lives and, and it's such a game changer in many ways it manifests what the pioneers of air power, you know, going back to Mitchell and all, they've always wanted. And it, it's really taken into the last couple of decades for the technology to catch up to that vision. So it's a pretty amazing time to watch this. You know, I want to go back to the notion of the requirements you're both seeing in the modern threat environment, the need for stand-in attack and the idea of cost effectiveness. And, you know, Gonzo, what are the challenges involved with balancing these factors? Yeah, you know, multiple analyses have shown that stand-in strikes by stealthy aircraft, bombers and fighters are far more cost-effective than very long-range standoff attacks. And one reason for that is stand-in aircraft like B-2s and B-21 Raiders can deliver far more weapons per sortie on targets that are located in these contested areas than aircraft that must stand off 600 nautical miles or more from an IADS in order to remain survivable. Those long standoff ranges mean aircraft must use, back to the point I made earlier, larger and more costly long-range weapons. And on the other hand, penetrating bombers can deliver smaller, shorter-range munitions much closer to target areas. A quick example, B-52s, my old jet, can carry up to 20 JASM ERs, which are standoff weapons, and B-2s, which can penetrate because they're stealthy, may be able to deliver two or three times that number those smaller mid-range weapons per sortie. Well, analysis has shown the cost of munitions that standoff aircraft must use quickly exceeds the cost of weapons stand-in aircraft can deliver. In the first case, the range is provided by the weapons and that drives up costs. In the second case, it's provided by the weapon carrier, the penetrating aircraft. And that's one reason why Secretary Gates chose to develop a new penetrating bomber, you know, the B-21 Raider, instead of another standoff bomb truck. Now, both standoff and stand-in strike capacity is needed, but in the right mix. The problem is today, our force mix is skewed heavily in favor of standoff. Now, and, and again, it goes back to giving the crews that are going to take, you know, that risk and, and stand in and all the right weapons to get the job done. And that is such an important part of the equation we've seen time and time throughout history. Now, you know, Jim, you and your team, you've developed a set of capabilities with the intent to hit the sweet spot of cost and in specific mission requirements. And you talked about it a little bit earlier when you introduced us to the notion of power JDAM and, and the extended range JDAM. But I want to learn more about that. Can you walk us through your thinking, kind of how you saw that requirement develop and, and how you thought you could you could hit the sweet spot? Yeah, so for uh, JDMER, you know, we've partnered with the Australian Defense and FARA for more than a decade to develop that capability and, and using that capability. We just signed an MOU with FARA for them to continue to be Boeing's supplier of the 500-pound JDMER wing kit through 2028. And that aligns with the ADF's commitment to stabilize and strength 
strengthen the Australian uh, industry capability under the GUIO enterprise. So continuing to evolve and use and develop the ER for other platforms, and, and we're going to continue to do that over the coming years. And then moving on to, to power JDM, uh, the Boeing Ferra team is looking at applications where we stay in alignment with AUKUS, the Trilateral Service Part Security Partnership, with the goal of developing the advanced capabilities to deter and defend against rapidly growing threats. And by doing that with partnering with FARA, using the capabilities that they have with Boeing, we're able to then provide the, the power JDAM with ranges in excess of 3,300 nautical miles. So what are the timelines involved to field these capabilities? I mean, obviously demand is, is surging right now. If folks in DOD wanted this stuff integrated in mass, what are we talking about time-wise? Yeah, you know, we've invested and we continue to invest a great deal here at Boeing to get the system level and the subsystem maturities at the high TRL levels, ultimately leading to a final development and fielding. You know, we're confident in the design of our power JDM and how to take the next step relatively quickly. We're working closely with DOD and international customers on their specific requirements going into the power JDM. But our overall objective is really to develop and field new capabilities on you know, 18 months to two year centers. And that, that then aligns with our production lots that we have uh, here at Boeing. And having you know, a government partner goes a long ways in getting the power JDAM moving forward. And we are confident that that will happen in the near future and that we'll continue the excellence of the JDAM platform and then leverage that into the, to the power JDAM for the long range standoff needs. That's good to hear. I mean, you just look at the usage rates right now and how strained we are on the munitions side. I mean, we've really got to move these solution sets uh, closer to getting them in, in volume. I just can't emphasize it enough. You know, and to that end, Gonzo, let's say you're with a member of Congress or a senior DOD leader. You got the few seconds with them in an elevator. What's the pitch? How would you break it down in simple terms why it's so important to develop options like these? I mean, I would suggest we really wouldn't have the ability to win without it. But I mean, how would you break it down? Yeah, I hope it's a slow moving elevator. Uh, the threat <laughs> of a pure conflict is growing every day and could occur this decade, not in some 2030 plus future. DOD leaders have gone on record concerning that risk. Now to be frank, our Air Force is modernizing and investing in new technologies, but many next gen systems aren't gonna be available at scale until the 2030s. So the problem is future increases in combat power do not deter today. There's good news. There are options to increase our combat mass in the near term. Given sufficient resources, the Air Force could ramp up its acquisition of F-35s and possibly B-21s for munitions. They could also buy more JASMs and their anti-ship derivative ARASMs. That would help. But the problem is, again, the Air Force simply cannot buy enough of them. And that's why I'm an advocate for also investing in low-cost modifications to some existing munitions. Modifications would make them more relevant in pure conflicts. Adding wings to existing bomb bodies and uh, inexpensive rockets and motors to extend their range are certainly options that I've written about for more than a decade. We've got to begin acquiring these weapons at scale now to help bolster deterrence. Now, again, not in some 2030 distant future.
So important. One of the key lessons learned from Ukraine is the need to share these sorts of munitions with their allies. And where does power JDAM stand in that mix? And can we export it? Can we build it in enough volume to meet our own requirements plus external customer demand? How does that work? Yeah, so I think, you know, what, the one thing we've learned is in order to support the urgent operational needs, like the ones that uh, everyone's facing today, we need to be able to go fast. So industry needs the capability to offer a timely and creative solutions that are developed rapidly, affordably, and at scale. So we're, that's where our ability to surge our hard production lines and have a robust production capacity and the ability to rapidly integrate with a wide range of international aircraft we have our strong supplier base and our international sustainment network that really makes uh, Power JDAM a viable option and be able to do that at, at scale. Um, the, our production lines here, as I said in the beginning, um, we, have, we have produced at a very high rate and uh, that capacity still exists here. But we need to look across the entire industry base and supply base and be assured that the supply base is ready for those kind of surges as well. Yeah, and a little editorial comment here. This is also why it's important we get off of continuing resolutions and things like that so we can actually make sensible investments going to the future. So enough of my soapbox. You know, Jim, where, where do you see this technology going next? Are there further developments you can discuss? Yeah, well, what, what I can say is there's a lot of activity going on around maritime strike and maritime aerial mining capabilities. The JDAM airframe was selected as the air vehicle for AFRL's QuickSync Seeker uh, demo. That QuickSync Seeker offers a lot of uh, capacity and capability that aligns with our vision for Power JDAM and for our Ground Launch SDB. You know, Ground Launch SDB is yet another of our evolving programs. We took an, a known capability and we're employing it in a different way. I think there'll be a lot of exciting news in the future in this area, and we continue to focus on, on the guidance and the lethality to match our expanding uh, range solution. Now it's, it's good to know, and you know, okay, got it. it it's awesome we have all this, but no arsenal is complete with just one weapon. Gonzo, what do you think we're gonna need to complement this technology? And you know, let's look at a time horizon for today, five years out, and then maybe 10 years. Sure, today, as I said, I would buy as many lorasms as possible for maritime strikes in particular, but that alone will not be enough to meet uh, our military's requirements. Now, I'm also a fan of uncrewed collaborative combat aircraft. They're now in development. Those aircraft are gonna help us in a number of missions, including precision strike and counter air and so forth. And they could join the force well within the next five years. But in addition to mid-range weapons we've discussed, there's gonna be a need for some new standoff weapons that are survivable and capable against moving relocatable targets like amphibious ships. But they also must be cost-effective, not long-range hypersonic weapons that cost $14 million or more, or even $6 million for a ramjet hypersonic cruise missile. That's gonna be difficult to buy at the scale we need for a pure conflict. I think a price point of two to three million or in that vicinity for a lower cost cruise missile is, is beginning to get into the box. Jim, any additional thoughts? I mean, I'm guessing your team is pretty busy thinking about what technologies might come next. Yeah, absolutely. We're continuing thinking about how we improve the weapons for today, for two years from now and beyond. 
And we, we see the future, including advancements in nav solutions, collaboration of weapons and mass, lethality improvements, advanced platforms for weapons. And, you know, frankly, it's just really a fun time to be involved in the innovation and leading the team, you know, focus on these solutions. Our team, you know, is continually innovating and looking towards that next modular capability to add to our trusted and proven JDAM and STB systems. We are absolutely aligned to the vision of the services, not only across direct attack, but in our Phantom Works team. And I can't be more proud of how our team continues to innovate. And I think as we lay out our strategies and invest in those strategies, we'll continue to be the leaders in the production of high volume, low cost weapons for the future. Yeah, and, and you think about it, I mean, kind of word of the no kidding threat demand is and, and the scale of those threats. And then where we are in the technological curve, I mean, it is a sweet spot right now to be in this marketplace and, and to be able to innovate and provide those solutions. And, and it's gotta be very, very rewarding for you to see that come to fruition because we, we need those answers yesterday. And, and it's great to see you guys advancing technology like this. And, and we're about out of time, but I want to kind of circle back on, on a question I, I asked Gonzo earlier and, and kind of reframe it for both of you. But, you know, I think it's so important, given that we've got folks on the Hill and the Pentagon who listen to the show each week. You know, if you were to advise these decision makers, is there a, a decision or an investment that stands above the rest that would help shore up this capability and capacity gap? Yeah, absolutely. Two quick points. First, the most capable force, the fifth and even sixth generation combat aircraft, isn't going to be effective if they don't have munitions. That's why more funding is needed to buy munitions for peer conflicts. Awareness that our forces could run out of their preferred munitions in a week or two of high intensity combat could actually invite a peer adversary to launch the kind of invasion that our National Defense Strategy says uh, we should prepare for. Congress can help take that option off the table by helping to increase munitions acquisition. Uh, second, if we are to defeat a peer adversary invasion, again, as, as our National Defense Strategy talks about, our forces are gonna have to have the capability and capacity to strike amphibious assault forces and uh, service combatants that are screening them. And that's gonna require high intensity maritime strikes over long ranges. Only the Air Force can sustain those operations at scale, but I'm concerned the Air Force won't have the maritime strike munitions it needs. Lorazem certainly, but equipping penetrating bombers and fighters with Lorazems would be a waste of their payload capacity. So the Air Force should prioritize buying those mid-range weapons for maritime strike and the power JDAM variant, to be blunt, what we've been discussing is, is a near-term option. It, it just makes sense. Jim, thoughts? Yeah, so I really think, you know, the bottom line is look for opportunities to make investments that add industrial capability to the defense industrial base. Investments in weapons that are exportable today and that leverage the billions of dollars in investments that our allies and partners have already made on their airplanes. You know, just as the National Defense Strategy calls for, investments that can deliver weapons to the warfighter, not in five years, but in less than two. And we believe that's how you de deter the next war. Now, especially given what we see on the front pages these days. So, gentlemen, it's been a pleasure. I really appreciate your time. And I want to revisit this one a little bit because there are a lot of moving pieces and it's an important one to track. So thank you. Thank you. Appreciate the invite and being able to join today. 
It's been a pleasure. Thanks. And with that, I'd like to extend a big thank you to our guests for joining in today's discussion. I'd also like to extend a thank you to our listeners for your continued support and for tuning in to today's show. And if you like what you've heard today, don't forget to hit that like button and follow or subscribe to Aerospace Advantage. You can also leave a comment to let us know what you think about our show or areas that you think we should explore further. And as always, you can join the conversation by following Mitchell Institute on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn. And you can always find us at mitchellaerospacepower.org. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next time.